When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Access Manchester. The Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Hello, I'm Jim Salverson and this is the XS Long Play. If you're into your classic Indian rock albums, this is the place to be because every single episode of this podcast delves deep into one of those with an individual who is behind its creation. There are loads of different albums covered off in this podcast series, maybe some of your favourites, but I'm assuming the reason you've come to this podcast is because you want to hear all about the Lightning Seeds 1994 album, Jollification, which I'm talking about on today's show with the one and only Ian Brody, who is the Lightning Seeds, essentially. It's him on his own doing his thing, which I don't think I realised at the time in the 90s when this was released. We talk about loads on this podcast. We talk about Ian's thoughts on songwriting, setting an atmosphere for an album, wanting to make something positive and the iconic cover art as well which I'm sure you can picture it's that blue sky background with a few strawberries floating on it including one big red one on which the pips have been replaced with people's faces I should have asked him who the people were actually I didn't ask him that but I did talk about plenty of other things so enjoy today's podcast Ian is a top man and you can almost hear the cogs turning as he talks about songwriting and we get quite deep on a few other musical issues as well enjoy this today's excess long player Jollification from the Lightning Seeds with Ian Brody how are you doing, Ian? I'm good. Nice to talk to you. Nice to speak to you. I've, I should say before we start, this is a really special album for me because it was one of the first albums that kind of got me into indie music. I remember my cousin, I can't remember what Christmas, well, it must have been Christmas 1994, I guess. I was really into dance music before that and house music, and he bought me a load of indie albums, one of which was Jollification. And I remember being drawn to it because of the front cover, and right. suddenly I listened to that and it kind of changed my outlook on music. So... Thank you for that. But I guess... Yeah, also, do you want to thank me or not? Has it worked out well? <laughs> I think so. I think okay. it's worked out for the better at the end of the day. But I guess... I mean, you ruined my life. <laughs> it, was, it was at a period of time when front covers were really important in music. And that was what drew me to the album more than anything else. It was this great big strawberry. Do you find yourself looking back to that period of time in terms of like it was almost a, like a complete project nowadays i guess there isn't as much attention on how an album sleeve looks yeah well the strawberry was um yeah it took some some photograph because you didn't have all the, all the computer technology that you have now but so it was quite a difficult thing to get the strawberry like that and all the seeds are tiny people aren't they and um i remember it was there was an article about it afterwards in these kind of um design computer magazines because they'd actually 
had to sort of invent a bit of technology to, to get it to look all right. You know, wow. it was quite a, you know, it's quite a long process, uh, which I'm sure you could do it in 10 minutes now on a Mac, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, for me, it's a little bit of a loss. The fact that you've lost not just the sleeve. I mean, because when you made an album, you kind of felt like, you know, you were making, yeah, you're making something real, really. And it was going to be an artifact. I don't know what the right word is. Artifact's probably not the right word, but, you know, it was going to be something that existed, a piece of reality or mm. that you could touch. And it is pretty different now. I mean, I understand why and everything, but I do think there's something a little bit lost in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes you can release a record now and it's just made available online. There's nothing tangible. There's nothing... You know, you're relying on someone else to click on it. You know, for me, it doesn't really exist in my mind in that situation. You know what I mean? I, it doesn't really exist. So therefore, it's it's intangible. And although the music, obviously, is the most important ingredient, I do think that music means... Well, when I was a kid, as you just described, it meant a little bit more. It was about identity and who you are and which albums you had identified the people you might be friendly with and who you might get on with and which way your life was going to go even. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so Something was, through someone's record collection when you go to yeah. the house for the first time. You can't do that with a Spotify account, really. No, and, and it's uh, also you don't put as much thought into it and maybe you don't quite figure out what it is you would like to, you know, you would be willing to actually sh pay for, you know, and, and, and own and have as a bit of a treasured possession. You know, it, it was kind of a ritual buying an album it was you know it was kind of more of a ritual and as you say you know you, you play it with your mates and it was a shared experience so i mean it's it's just a progression and it's a different thing now it's uh you know i'm sure there's loads of positives but in terms of it just being a treasured possession it's definitely not like that when you just click on spotify this wasn't how I was intending to start this interview. It's but a bit I, depressing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> well, I, philosophical, let's say. But it does bring me on to something I was going to talk about, because recently you're looking back at 25 years of this album now, and it wasn't that long ago. Or, or, sorry, it's 26 years this year. It was 25 years last year. And you had the opportunity to celebrate that anniversary, and you celebrated with it with thousands of people. You reissued the album. You played gigs where you played the album right the way through. Do you think the bands now will have the same relationship with music in 25 years because of that lack of a buy-in from people? Like you say, they're not investing 15 quid in an album when they go to the shops. It is kind of a disposable thing. So the deep relationships that the people that had with your music that were at their 25-year celebrations, can you see that not existing into the future? No, actually, I don't think that's right. I, you know, I mean, I don't know, no crystal ball, but mm. I think music marks out a time of your life, really. You know, so it might be the time you're at college. It might be the time you first live away from your parents. It might be a certain time when your team win the cup. You know, it could be anything, really. You know what I mean? And I think we kind of go back to the music conjures up those times and those feelings. So in a way, it's a, it's a kind of a nostalgia, I think, really. The only thing is... People won't really have nostalgia for albums, I wouldn't think. Or it just depends on the band. I'm sure they will for an Arctic Monkeys album. But for for 90% of things, they'll just have nostalgia for a song, won't they, though? Because there's no album attached. It's just kind of a, a song, really. I'm not sure people listen to the album anymore. I'm not sure 
you know, it's it's almost tempting to say, well, what should I make an album or should I make five tracks? Do you know what I mean? That, that people will listen to and try and get them on the radio. It's gone all the way from the concept album, hasn't it? You know, Dark Side of the Moon or something where you, you know, turn the lights down, have a, a smoke a spliff or something and, and, and play it from start to finish to a point where it's just kind of one song on a playlist and you probably might never have heard the album or anything else by the artist. So it is a different experience, but I still think the nostalgia thing will take you back to it. Focusing back on Jollification, it's an album, like I say, you celebrated the anniversary of 25 years ago, released in 1994. What was it like when you came to approach that anniversary and that celebration, looking back at the album, rediscovering it, peering through the mists of time? Yeah. Well, it was um, it's quite daunting to think of playing all the songs because there's some songs I'd never played live. and At no uh, point? Not even no, no. There's a song called Why, Why, Why that I kind of did mainly as an electronic, almost like, not yeah, probably a, almost like a dance track, not really dance, but certainly electronic. And I used a lot of loops on the album because I was still, you know, kind of really enthralled by the whole post kind of duller soul. I started on, on the Sense album using loops and Jollification was pretty much, you know, all, all that. It wasn't, wasn't really any live drums on it, I don't think. And now, actually now it's a lot easier for me to play those songs because the technology has moved on so much. You can actually have that stuff going live fairly easily. But back then it would have been a real nightmare to play. So it was a little bit daunting, but it worked out a lot easier technically than, than I thought it would be. And I loved, you know, I loved playing some of them, you know, and, re- and remembering them really. Although coming back to the album, because I suppose certain tracks stand out larger than others, Jollification implies this really upbeat album. And actually, it's not that upbeat <laughs> when you come to play it live. It's, it's, it's quite atmospheric and, mm. you know, the, it has its moments. It's, you know, really, I suppose it's the tracks that everyone remembers, the singles that were more upbeat, really. But it was lovely playing the gigs because people really loved and got excited at the singles, but then really listened and sang along to all the more atmospheric songs and the other songs it was it was it was brilliant and then it was really nice to have an audience you know knowing every word and and you, you know you're able to indulge in a sense and playing all those songs it was yeah. great and it, it felt like you were amongst friends you say the album's maybe not upbeat all the way through but for me coming back and listening to this album and it's been a while since i've listened to it all the way through but coming back and listening to it it felt like a very positive album in terms of just the way it feels the atmosphere it creates when you were writing it when you were creating it 25 years ago 26 years ago were you in a positive place was it a positive experience to create it i don't know if i was in a a positive place i wasn't in a negative place but i made a conscious decision to call the album jollification and to make it feel positive you know because i felt like the album i'd made before which had life o'reilly on and um couple of other tracks I can't really remember oh Sense had Sense and Life O'Reilly on but some of the album really felt a bit like I hate it when it sounds like people are kind of moaning on tape and there's a lot of that at the moment you know what I mean and and I felt like I feel there's a lot of that at the moment but I actually at that moment I felt like maybe I'd done that and been a a little bit just indulgent you know and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about you know Leonard Cohen or you know there's some fantastic music that takes you into a 
a, a wistful and sad place, but there is a fine line between that and just moaning, I think. Mm. And uh, I just felt like I was close on that line. And I decided if I was going, I wasn't sure I was going to make another album because I didn't have any record company at that time. And I, I was producing a bit and I had a studio in Liverpool. So I, I recorded the album self kind of funded and in a quite a low key way, really. And I wasn't sure if there would be a home for it or anything, but I just wanted to make a really positive record. What stage of that process from beginning to make the record to recording to publishing, did you begin to think you might have something here? Because it was a hugely successful album, went platinum, loads of top 20 singles off it as well. At what point during that process did you go, well, do you know what, there's something in this? I don't think you ever really think about it like that. I felt like it was sounding unusual. And sometimes unusual's good and sometimes unusual's bad. You know, I think timing is everything, really. And, I mean, some people are a lot cleverer about it than I am. I, I just feel like I'm, I can't work those things out. So I just kind of do what I do. And I hope that the world turns at some point and is in conjunction with my music. And there's been moments when it has been in conjunction and moments when it hasn't. Do you know what I mean? But I think for me making the music at the time maybe not looking back but at the time you always feel like this is the greatest thing you've done and you kind of have to feel like that really although I, I, I really don't like finishing things I always think it's a bit disappointing finishing stuff because <laughs> it defines it you know and in my head it, it's many things and then when it's finished you're kind of faced with the, this definition that probably wasn't what you were hoping for but then that is what makes you go on and make another record. With the album having this positive feel, did that transition into the sessions, into the actual creation of the album? Because it feels like, again, it comes back to the just what you get as a listener, I guess, but it feels like it's full of energy and full of fun that the sessions when you were creating it must have been an enjoyable process rather than necessarily a graft. bit of both, to be honest. You know, I mean, I think albums sometimes... I mean, I wasn't like dancing in in the morning, throwing it down, having a party and going home. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I wish I was, you know. <laughs> be like a scene from Beggar's Banquet. But, um, but I, I did, I loved making, I mean, to be honest with you, I love being in the studio and I love making music. Actually, I don't really love it now so much, but um, I mean, I love making music, but I'm not so fond of being in the studio. I actually like to be out playing gigs. But at that time when I made Jollification, it was the third Lightning Seeds album, but I'd never done a gig. So we'd never played live. So it was purely a studio experience, really. And um, I loved being in the studio and just, uh, you know, I had this a studio in Liverpool, which is the first time I'd recorded the two previous albums at home. Because, you know, initially when I started, which does relate back to it, but when I started, I didn't have a record contract and I kind of recorded stuff at home. And then a guy who I'd met who was a publisher just loved the sound of it and decided to just have some pressed up and make it a label. But it wasn't actually on a label. I think at that time, a lot of the bands in Liverpool, I suppose it would be, you know, the Lars and bands like they were all signing Shaq. They were signing big major label deals because they were playing and record companies were kind of coming up and signing them. But I'd never done a gig and I was, you know, probably not the most, I didn't, no one felt like I was the most likely to. I was probably the most unlikely to, you know, there was, 
there'd be Ian McCulloch and me, and you'd mm. think, well, you know, he's probably the guy you want to, which he would be, actually. I don't mean that in any kind of a negative sense, but I probably wasn't the most obvious bet. So in the end, I just recorded some songs at home, and that was pretty much the first album. And then I recorded the second album in my brother's house because uh, my house was a bit full. So it was the first time I'd actually had a studio, was Jollification. But as I say, uh, I didn't have a record contract or anything. So I, I remember it as being really great. I was, you know, there were people around. It was moments of great fun getting the tracks down, although I was playing everything. So it was, it, it was somewhat solitary. And then doing the vocals, it was kind of a winter and I used to go in at night have a few hot toddies, you know, and sing just on my own in the studio and got it all done like that. So it was quite a sort of solitary, but I loved doing it at the time. And I, and I was really, I really wanted it to feel positive, you know. I don't think people always appreciate that the Lightning Seeds is you, essentially. It's kind of you on your own and you are the, the, the master of everything. But on this album, there's a fair few collaborations that come in with notable figures. You've got Terry Hall on the album, Alison Moyer, Ian McNabb. Did that come from a desire to kind of bounce ideas around and to bring in an element of collaboration into your music? Yeah, I think it came from an element of probably, you know, insecurity in a way and also admiration. I mean, Terry Hall is one of my heroes kind of thing and I'm lucky enough to work with him and write with him. So writing with him, we're friends and it's easy for me to write with him. I'm not very good at doing sessions with people I don't know. I've, I've never really, you know, wanted to do that particularly. And Alison, I was just producing her album and we were spending a lot of time together and we got on well. And it seemed a natural thing to say, you know, do you fancy writing one with me? And yeah, so it, so it, it, was, it was quite natural. It was just people I knew who were around and all the people on the album were, were friends really. I want to pick a track to talk about, if that's right, one that caught my ear when I was listening back to this one. Am I going to ask you to pick a few as well in a moment that can be memories or they can be highlights? It's up, up to you what you pick, so we'll get onto that shortly. But first, I just wanted to highlight Marvelous off the album because I wanted you to talk to me about the intro on this because <laughs> I'd completely forgotten about this two minutes of pulsating electronic noise that introduces the track that I remember and I think I must remember the single version so there are obviously two versions of this the album version which has this great big long intro and the single version that goes straight in on the big stuff when you were talking about releasing this in the first place was there a reluctance to remove that intro if indeed it was removed as I remembered it or was there just an acceptance on your side that well do you know what this has got this has got to work as a commercial entity so we have to take this bit of creativity at the front off uh, is it not on the single? It's definitely not on it for two minutes, that's for sure. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't remember it. I might be wrong, but I can't, no, I'm yeah, working in radio, so <laughs> we, we no, never play you, the intros. Do you know what? You might be right, though. I haven't ever listened to the single I've only, myself. I've only listened to the album, but I know that the single is in a different order. I know I edited it in a different order. So the actual order of where things come is slightly different, and it's... There's a verse that isn't in in a single, you know what I mean? It is quite mm. different. So a few tracks changes like that as well. You know, it's, there's a verse taken out for the single version. and But I think I always approach recordings like I just it, approach it as a creative thing. And sometimes the song might only last two minutes, 30. Sometimes it might be six minutes. I just let the song decide that because obviously 
in post-production, you can make it anything you want, really. The, the creative process carries on. You can shorten it. You can change it from the album version, mm. you know, anything like that. So I think, I, I'm not sure. I was listening to a lot of kind of kraut rock and craft work amongst a lot of other things. And I think that came from that where it was just a real slow build-up of rhythm that you get in a lot of those kind of records, really. You know, it was nice to be messing about with the synths. I had a few old synths and was messing about with them. You know, Lucky You's got a sort of intro of kind of whale noises and stuff. like that. I, I really wanted to create an atmosphere, I think, before the tracks. It was something that was in my mind, really, to do, to do that quite a lot on them. There's a fair few tracks with, with um, you know, just sort of atmospheres mm. and then the track comes in. And I think that stemmed from, you know, I'm quite aware that in different situations, songs, you know, can sound a different way. And the kind of masters, your Neil Youngs and your Bob Dirt, they kind of, in some mad way, set a tone and set an atmosphere by their presence. And then when they play, I suppose it's a confidence. And so their songs sound in context. Mm. And I, I think I had something like that in my mind that because I was quite new at doing that in a way, making an album. And it was, you know, a new way of recording with the, with the loops and that. I was quite conscious I wanted to set a sort of atmosphere so that the song, when it started, be in a place where it could flourish. <laughs> I can't really express it any other way. I get what you mean. Pick a couple of tunes for me off this album, Ian. Tracks that you're just really proud of, or they could be moments that spark off memories about their creation. Well, playing songs live and revisiting it, I think obviously some of the songs that weren't the singles that I hadn't thought about for a long time. Because I think in your career, a lot of the time, you get defined by the tracks that were singles. And looking back, I think, it, I, I never realised it, but it is quite important to make sure that the songs that define you are the ones you want to define you, in a way. And I am really proud of all the singles, but I feel like there is more to that on the album, really. Do you know what I mean? There is more than that on the album, which which is was great to rediscover. And, I, and there's a track called Telling Tales. It was a poem that I'd written, you know, it was about a kind of a winter's day when Riley was pretty little. And um, I never finished it, really. I, I just had, you know, it became a song, but I could never write the second verse. And later on, actually, I did a solo album and I did a song called Tales Told, which kind of was the second half of that song. But going back to this, it, it was just, it, it really held a special thought for me you know there's a park in liverpool called calderstones park it was a very liverpool inspired album to be honest it was mm. i was writing a lot about i think probably just change and loss and it was a it was a time when i was in the park with you know the baby really you know in a pram and it was snowing and we were sort of in the middle of the park and it just felt very i felt very vulnerable and it was kind of just getting dark and quite misty, you know what I mean? And it was just a moment. And I kind of, um, I think that song, it's just about that. I don't know, it's not very clear what it's about, just about making sure you've got a warm coat or something. I don't know, and, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking. But um, coming back to it, I, I love that song, you know, even though it's very short, I think it's probably one of the, one of the you know, it's one of my favourite I, I, I kind of think as you go on with songs, it's almost like a process of clearing everything out and making it less and less and less and simpler and simpler 
and more direct and more direct, which mm -hmm. I think is the opposite of the way the rest of the world is going. <laughs> but in a way, I always think in some way that, you know, you hear John Lennon singing about across the universe and it's such an amazingly poetic, you know, you know, words are flying out like endless rain into a paper, you know, and you're like, whoa. Mm -hmm. But then it's nowhere near as powerful as saying, imagine really, do you know what I mean? That just that one word. And somehow that direction of travel, I really admire. I really admire, you know, the, the way it becomes simpler. And I think Dylan's like that as well. And it just becomes more direct in a way, you know, you know, all those amazing lyrics and I love Dylan, but I think knocking on heaven's door is just a line that is so simple, but everyone knows what that, that means, you know? Uh, so, you know, in a way, I don't know what I'm rambling on about here. I'm absolutely going off the points. So just, <laughs> just thinking about things there. So I don't know what I'm talking about, but just the fact this was so short and so direct, I, I really liked it hearing again. Is there another track off the album that you'd like to pluck out? Um, um, I'd have to say, look at you. Look at you is to me, you know, just, you can't get much more melodic, uplifting. It's a joyous song and it, and the sound of it and the way it's produced when I listen to it, it's just, so when you record, you hope for moments of serendipity and you hope that somehow something gets captured that you don't quite know how that happened. And you don't, you know, you, you couldn't do it again. And I think for me, that's a track where I, I feel like that. I feel like I, I don't know how, how we got it like that, really. And it's just right. Now, there are a few albums from the mid-90s that as good as they were and as brilliant as they sound now, they're still very much of a time. They sound like they're from that Britpop era. Coming back to this album, it occurred to me that it could have been recorded in the 80s. It could have equally been recorded last week. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have its roots in that kind of 92 to 98 era as maybe a lot of the other music that was produced at that time. What do you think makes it different? Why do you think this came out sounding so different to a lot of the other stuff that was popular around that era? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is that all those people are groups, really. So, and, and this wasn't, this was, you know, me in a studio, an alchemist, really, just try and throw this at it, throw, throw that at the canvas and try and paint it. Whereas I think a lot of the groups, and that's, that's not, I'm not trying to say that's better or anything, but a lot of the groups were good groups who sounded a certain way and their performance is captured on the record, which is a different way of making a record. So I think it's partly that. And I think when you use technology, like I was using samplers and loops, it's either going to sound incredibly dated incredibly quickly <laughs> or it's just not going to sound dated. And, and I, fortunately, this has fallen on that side, I think. I suppose I was not really anything to do with... Um, I kind of got caught up in Britpop, but really, you know, Pure was a hit and Sense and all those things predated it. And I was on my third album, so even though it kind of fitted in that era, it really wasn't mm. of that era, really. It just, just kind of sat alongside it, really. 
finally, you talk a lot about the technologies you were using at the time and the limitations and opportunities, I guess, those technologies presented at the same time. When you came back to this album for the reissue last year and when you played these gigs again and were presented with different options, was there a temptation to go back and do things differently or re-record things with newer technologies that made it interesting or made it easier? Or even in, was there any kind of regret that the new technologies didn't exist at the time you were recording this stuff? No, the opposite, actually. You know, I think I think it's it's a lot more um, organic, really, and it, a little bit more. You know, I don't want to get into what I think about you know the way things are recorded at the moment. I'm not a massive fan of the process. Um, you know, I'm not a massive uh, fan of the way some things sound at the moment. Although there's some things I think sound fabulous and glorious, they're not the most obvious things. So I don't think, and I think for me as well, as I was saying, you know, when you when you when I make an album anyway, it's I have to just come to a certain point where I think I have to stop now. You know, I'll never get it like it is in completely in my mind because it would have to be ten things at once. So it's like a kind of like a suitcase that's too full, and I kind of cram the lid on it, and then once the lid is on, it becomes something. And it, and it is, that's what exists. So for me, if I open that lid, you know, mm. it'll be chaos. <laughs> so I don't really want to open it, you know. Ian, it's been fascinating chatting to you about this album, which is a much loved album from the mid 90s. Thank so you very much. Really appreciate your time on the XS Long Player. Cheers. That's very kind of you. And it's been lovely having a chat. Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please come back for more or just go back in the back catalogue because there's loads to go out, loads of classic albums discussed with the people who made them, including, to pick a few, Out of Thin Air, The Strokes, This Is It, Cortina's, St Jude, Badly Drawn Boy, Power of the Bewilderbeast, and one of my personal favourites, one of my favourite albums of all time, Liam Frost, Show Me How the Spectres Dance, which, if it isn't an album you are familiar with, go and listen to it, and then go and listen to the podcast. Stunning album, really cool chat with Liam. Please click subscribe or follow wherever it is you are listening to this podcast. We'll send you a notification when the next episode is ready, and leave a review as well. Let me know what you think of this show. Get into Apple Podcasts, say some nice things, or some nasty things if you really want to. Click on the five stars, that's a must. And I promise you, I will read your comments. And hopefully, see you soon for the next Excess Long Play. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester.